In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Okay, God willing, today we're going to continue studying the book of Genesis. We're actually making a lot of progress. Uh, you know, the 50 chapters, we're, we're getting through it. We're like getting close to being done, so that's great. Um, last time we spoke about Genesis 38 and 39. Does anyone remember what we talked about before? Last week, yes. Chapter 38. So the chapter 39 is where Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt. And we read about his story in, uh, in Potiphar's house, right? And how he was very successful. God made everything that he did to succeed. Um, and that he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife that he was trying to rape her. And then he was sold into prison. He was, he was put into prison. Um, that's where we kind of left it, um, 39. Remember what 38 was about? 38 was about something completely different, not about Joseph. Oh, it was about, Judah. Judah, right? It was a story about Judah um, and how his daughter-in-law deceived him to have a child um, because uh, she, she was going to marry his son, but then he didn't, uh, he didn't allow her to or he kind of neglected her. And so she deceived him. Um, that, that's what happened in chapter 38. Okay, so we'll start today in chapter 40. Uh, it came to pass after these things. So after these things is referring to um, essentially uh, Joseph being in prison. Okay, came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord and the, uh, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. If you remember... Um, that when we're speaking about Joseph, that he is a messianic figure, that he has, there's a lot of uh, symbols in his life that uh, is related to like prophecies about Christ. You know, we spoke about how uh, the, the Jews uh, crucifying Christ is the same as the brothers of Joseph throwing him into the well, right? We spoke about how um, the Jews eating the Passover immediately after the crucifixion of Christ was the same as the brothers of Joseph eating a meal right after they threw him into the well, right? We, we spoke about um, like the, the coat of many colors representing the church, right? We spoke about a lot of symbols, right? So this symbolism is going to continue and the church fathers speak about this. So in this context here, the church fathers, they speak about the chief butler and the chief baker as representing the two thieves on the cross, okay? Both of them are being punished in the jail because of their sin, just like the thieves, okay? And we're going to see this symbolism play out, okay? Um, so he put them in custody, the butler and the baker, right? He put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, so they were in custody for a while, okay? Remember previously, it had said that when Joseph was sent into the prison, he had such a great reputation among the head of the, the, the prison, that he made Joseph essentially responsible for everything and responsible for the prisoners. And again, God was making everything that he did to succeed, even while he was a prisoner, okay? So Joseph was responsible for the prison, and so he was also like a caregiver to these two men, okay? Again, since Joseph is a messianic figure, right, that through him comes salvation, Salvation for all the world, as we're going to see eventually when he is the one responsible for feeding the world in the midst of a famine. But also here, he is like the one who is the caregiver for these two who are the prisoners, just as on the cross, Christ is the one who saved the right-hand thief. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them. Each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream, a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it, it budded, its blossom shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took 
the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place and you will put up Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me, make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon, okay? So we said that the butler and the baker represent who? Two, two thieves. The two thieves. So which one is the butler? Right. Right hand thief, why? Because he was the one that was saved. Right. So the butler is the one who is going to be saved, right, by Pharaoh, right? He's going to allow the butler to be restored again to his job, okay? Uh, and so this represents the, the thief who was saved, yes. But he doesn't remember Joseph. No, that's right. He doesn't remember Joseph. Why is that? I mean, it's not obviously a perfect comparison, right? It's a, there's a lot of differences in the story, um, but but when you look at it from a certain perspective, okay, you see some similarities, right? It doesn't mean it's 100 percent. Yeah. Um, also, some some specific elements about the dream, right? He's the one who received the cup of wine, right? Just as we received the blood of Christ. So speaking about the the, the the wine, how the wine is, is related to this whole idea of salvation of the butler, okay? Um, also, the salvation was to occur uh, after three days, okay? Which represents the resurrection, right? The resurrection after Christ was in the tomb for three days. All right, so that was the butler. Okay, now the baker. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream and there were three white baskets on my head. I find it interesting that it says when he saw that the interpretation was good, right? Like, like, okay, like this man, Joseph, he says a bunch of good stuff. So I want him to also tell me what he has to say, because somehow we feel like, or, or, or this, this baker, he feels like um, he's going to give him good news, right? Because the butler got good news. So that means most likely I also will be getting good news. In the uppermost basket, so this were the this was the dream. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, "This is the interpretation of it: the three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you." It's not what you want to hear. Right, the first one it said what well, he lifted up his head, but he kind of restored his honor. Right, he, he lifted up his head. This one he says he lifted off his head. You know, like so. Um, the baker, okay, he represents the Jews who perform all kinds of good works, like the law, like the law of the Old Testament, apart from faith in the Lord and the salvation through the body and the blood. Right, so the the blood of Christ was evident in the dream of the first. Right. So it's kind of like sending this message saying what salvation is through the blood of Christ, not through the good works. The one who had the dream that included the wine, which is a representation of the blood of Christ. This is the one who had salvation. And this one. Right. Because he didn't have the salvation through the Lord. He's the one who is condemned. Okay. This is symbolism. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday that he had made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Okay, so Joseph was always at all times acting out of love. Right. Even though he was victimized, even though he was hated, even though he was falsely accused, even though he was thrown into prison, you know, even these prisoners that 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 were put under his care, 
the one that he gave the good news to tell him that you know he's going to be freed it wasn't enough joy in him it wasn't enough caring in this in this butler for him to remember joseph the man who like comforted his heart and told him that this was going to happen it didn't it didn't occur to him even to to remember uh, joseph in front of pharaoh to to bring it you know bring him out of prison but even this was part of god's providence right because you know, from a, from a human perspective, we could say, oh, okay, well, the butler is the one who put in a good word for Joseph, and so Pharaoh allowed him to leave the thing, right? But what's going to happen is actually greater than that, right? What's going to happen is going to demonstrate even more strongly how God is working, and that if, if what had happened is the butler had simply put in a good word for Joseph, and so Pharaoh would release him, Everything else that was going to happen after that would not have happened, okay? And we'll see that here shortly, okay? So Jonah, uh, Joseph is performing this act of love, right? Um, and he's doing it both to those who are saved and those who are condemned, right? This is, again, a symbolism of the love of God to us. Like, God is showing love to all people equally. Whether those person are ultimately going to be saved, to have salvation, or whether those people are ultimately going to reject God, okay? It didn't matter. It didn't, it doesn't make a difference. In the eyes of God, God is love and he shows love to all, okay? And in this case, Joseph's love was not returned, okay? But that did not change the love that God has for us or the love that Joseph is showing to everyone, okay? Any questions about chapter 40 before we move on? Yes. So when we speak about the forsakenness, right? So so there is a wrong view of this, and a lot of those that from the Protestant tradition view it this way. The way they view it is that somehow there was a schism in the Trinity, and that somehow the Son became separated from the Father in a, in, in his essence, like he's somehow separate. Okay, that's not what we believe, because actually that would change the very nature of who Christ is. Okay. So we never believed that there was any separation or division in the Trinity itself. This forsakenness has to do with the idea that the sin of mankind has been placed on the Son, right? We, so, so when we sinned, right, when we sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, they became separated from God, right? So sin separates. So when all of the sin of mankind was placed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Okay. Now this repugnant sin is present, right, in the Trinity, right? It doesn't cause a separation in the, in the sense that we became separated from God, but it causes this, I mean, I don't know if there's any human word to describe it, okay? But, but there is something there that is, that is foreign, right, that is not in the nature of God, that's there in between the relationship and the Father and the Son, okay? Sharif, do you have a question? Even from what I read, because the because the, the baker is the one who's ultimately condemned, the interpretation is just speaking about how the wine and the dream represents the blood of Christ, but I couldn't. I didn't find anything speaking about like how some how the bread would represent the body of Christ. I think just in, because that baker was ultimately condemned, right? So the interpretation that I read was that the, the blood of Christ is the one who resulted in the salvation of the butler, right? But the but the baker no, like the baker didn't have that. But that's a that's an interesting question because it does make sense. Anything else about chapter 40? Okay. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. So two years have passed now. Okay, two years. That Pharaoh had a dream. 
And behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the set out of the river seven cows, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second dream. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh's told, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. Like, so this is two years later, all of a sudden, right? The butler remembered Pharaoh, uh, Joseph. And he remembered him in a time where he was needed. Like not just in a time where, please, Pharaoh, please let my friend Joseph go free. And if Pharaoh had agreed, Joseph would have been free. And he would, that's it. Like maybe he would, where would he go? Maybe he would even leave Egypt. Maybe he would go back to his family. Like, you know, he wouldn't have any place in history you know, after this point, if that's all that had happened. But God waited for this opportunity, right, that suddenly the butler's memory, he remembers, right, Joseph, in a time when Joseph is needed because he is going to come interpret this dream. Another interesting thing about the dream, right, so how many situations, if the story of Joseph, how many dreams have there been so far? From the very beginning? Yes, from the very beginning. Uh, Sher Sharif is saying six. What, what is the six? Yes, so Joseph had two dreams, both showing that like his brothers and others around him are bowing to him. That was originally two, okay? And then what? The butler and the baker. So those are two. And the two for Pharaoh. The first two are very similar, right? The second two are very similar, and the and the last two are very similar, right? And the first two happen at the same time, and the second two happen at the same time, and the last two happen at the same time, right? So, what is why is this significant? Because God is making it clear by having more than one dream about the same thing that this is relevant. Like this isn't just something to be dismissed. This isn't just like a dream that you have that you kind of like, okay, that was a weird dream and that's it. Like it became uh, kind of significant to each of these people. Like when the butler and the baker both have like a very similar dream that's kind of talking about three different things and it's talking about um, the original occupation they had before they were put in prison, like on the same day, right? That kind of brings their attention. It's like, this isn't a regular dream, right? When Pharaoh has the exact same type of dream, like similar in nature, two days in a row or one after the other, again, it's gonna get his attention, right? And the same thing with Joseph at the beginning. So this is a way that kind of gets the attention of the people to think there is something behind the dream. Like maybe God is communicating something uh, behind this dream. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, so this is now the butler talking to Pharaoh after he remembered Joseph. And he says, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants, talking about himself and the baker. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Okay. 
someone in the position of Joseph, and, and, and we see this happening many times, like we spoke last time about how, for instance, when Joseph was in Potiphar's house, that he had a lot to lose by being honest and truthful and keeping himself pure from Potiphar's wife. He had a lot to lose by doing that, but he still chose and did the right thing. Here also we see an example where anyone who is in a position of weakness and vulnerability like Joseph, who is standing in front of the king, like the king, he is the one who can pardon. He is the one who can give you whatever it is that you want to give. So someone like that, you, you would expect, and what we see around us, right, is people that are going to kiss up essentially to make themselves appear very important, very unique, very powerful, very talented, very whatever, to be useful to the king so that the king would have favor on them, right? You know, people want to have the favor of, of, of powerful leaders. And if I can demonstrate that I'm indispensable to a powerful leader, then now I have like, you know, like I have access. I have access to power. I have access to position. I have access to good things, right, for me, because now the leader identifies me as being someone who is, you know, necessary and someone who is important and so on, okay? But here, um, when, when Joseph, when Pharaoh is questioning Joseph about this and, and he's, he's telling him, you know, I heard that you can interpret dreams, right? The first thing that Joseph says, it is not in me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace, okay? He is deflecting the glory that he receives from Pharaoh. He's deflecting it to God, right? And, and, and so he's, 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 he's recognizing who he is. He's recognizing that everything is coming from God. And he is not shying away to tell Pharaoh, saying, this is not because I'm good. This is not because I have any special talent. It is not because I want to gain glory for myself, right? Even, even to get out of prison, even to gain favor with the king. No, this is coming. This is from God. It is not, it is not in me, okay? Also, as we see in examples of other prophets, you know, like namely Daniel, for instance, when he is in an exile in Babylon, it is through Joseph's obedience, it is through Joseph's patience, it's through Joseph's humility that he gains the attention, right, of a powerful leader like Pharaoh, and he uses all of the hardship that he experienced over these past years as a, a, a means by which he can share the truth about God with Pharaoh who is pagan, okay? So he's using this as an opportunity to share his faith with him. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadows. He's recounting the dream again. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning, so I awoke. I also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Okay. Um, so here, this point at the end, where he says no one was able to explain it to me, like, like, like. He's exhausted every means, like he's exhausted every other means, which is why he would be even willing to seek out, you know, a, a Hebrew man who has been in prison, who has been accused of all this stuff. Why would he even bring him to meet with him unless he had exhausted every other avenue? And he's like desperate to understand what it is that it means. Like, again, if you think about the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream and no one was able to interpret it. And actually, Nebuchadnezzar had said that he was going to kill all of the diviners, the magicians, the soothsayers, like he was going to kill them all. Because actually, in his case, he didn't even tell the dream. He wanted the, the magicians to know what the dream was and then to interpret it for him. And, and at that time, right, Daniel, because of his faithfulness, he saved so many people who were going to die simply because God is the one who interpreted the dream and revealed it to Daniel. So... 
here Joseph is like, or uh, Pharaoh is like, he's, he's tried everything, and now he's at a point where he's willing to listen to Joseph, who was someone otherwise he would never have even known about. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Okay. Um, this idea that there is uh, the seven years uh, of, of plenty and then there's the seven years of famine. And Joseph's strategy is going to be to use the seven years of plenty to save up from the seven years of plenty as much extra as he can so that in the seven years of famine, right, he will be able to draw from the plenty. He will be able to draw from what was left over from the plenty, okay? Um, this also has like a spiritual meaning like behind it. Like there are periods in our life where we feel like things are smooth, right? And things are... Like we feel like it's easy to pray, it's easy to read the Bible, it's easy to go to church, it's easy to serve, and we do those things joyfully, and we do them feeling like maybe every time I come to church, I feel edified and benefiting, and I see things changing in my life, and I'm benefiting and growing and, and that, okay? But then there's other seasons in life where we feel it's like the opposite. We feel like we do not want to pray, we do not want to read the Bible, we do not want to come to church, we do not want to you know, sir, we do not want to do anything, okay, which is an attack, and that attack can come through many ways, but the way that we survive those periods of darkness, like those periods of temptation, those periods of hardship, the periods where we feel that everything we know to do that is right is difficult and, and maybe tasteless, and we don't want to do those things, right, the way that we, 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 we kind of survive, okay, is we draw upon the plenty that came from before, right? A person who tastes the love of God and tastes the goodness of God, really, okay? At one point in their life, they never really forget that taste, okay? And even if we go through difficult periods where we feel like we are more distant and we feel like we are struggling and we feel like the things that used to come so easily to us are now more difficult for us, there is still the memory and of the goodness and the taste of God that we are striving and desiring to return to it again. That, that it kind of like attaches us, that even though maybe the rope that attaches us to God has been lengthened and that we feel further away, but we are not cut off. We are still connected, just maybe feeling more distant. And that at some point, through the grace of God working in us and through our own desire, our own struggle, that we can draw closer again to God and renew and even surpass the original like experiences of goodness that we had with God from before. This is why, like for instance, even in like the yearly church season, this is why we have different seasons. Like for instance, the great fast season. The great fast season is a very special time where we focus a lot on asceticism, right? And for those who really take this period of time seriously, we find that things change in our life. Like maybe things that are constantly like hounding us, like temptations that are currently constantly like, um, uh, like causing us to fall into sin and, and, and you know, all kinds of problems that we have, we find that we begin to gain more self-control. We find that maybe our appetite is less. We find that it's maybe easier to pray. We find that it's easier to read books than maybe it wasn't before. So it's like a season of the year where we are really, really building up, a, building up like extra, like plenty, okay? And then when the Holy 50 days comes and everything goes away, <laughs> we like pull from the, the kind of the extra capacity that we had gotten from the great fast. And of course, like hopefully to like bring that out through the whole year. Um, 
this idea that there are seasons, right? There are seasons in life, even not just for spirituality, but there are seasons in life. There are times of life, you know, just like what uh, King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, when he said there's a time for everything under the sun, right? There are times where our relationships with people are great and we're enjoying them. And there's times where our relationships are not so great and we're struggling with them. There's a time where our health is very good and there's a time where our health is not so good, right? There's a time where, um, where you know, financially, maybe we feel very secure. And there's another time where financially we feel like it's kind of rocky, right? Maybe we lost our job. There's seasons. Life is not the same. Life changes from season to season to season. And anything that we can learn maybe from those who are more elderly, right? And I used to always kind of learn this from my own grandparents, is that whatever season we're in will not last forever. Whether it's good, whether it's not good, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, no season lasts forever. And so if the season is one that makes it easy for us to grow, then we invest our energy to grow. If the season is one where it's difficult to grow, then we draw upon the strength that we have received previously to help us to endure to the end of the season. But we always remember that God is allowing the season for a reason. There is a reason for the season, right? And that there is an end to the season, okay? So whether the season is great, don't, don't trust that it will last forever, right? And if the season is not so great, also have faith that it will end and it will not last forever. And we see how God here is preparing the people that if it were not for this preparation that they did, they the whole world might have died, right? In this, right? Because it wasn't just Egypt. All the other countries, all the family of Joseph, they all ran out of food. And they were going now to Egypt to get from the food there, all because God worked in the life of this man, Joseph, because of his faithfulness, and that God, out of his love, wanted to save the whole world. This is why we consider Joseph to be a messianic figure. Because it is through him that the world was saved from dying, right? Of course, God is the one who was working. Um, so at this point in the story, Joseph had interpreted the dreams, right? And and that's all um, that's all that he would ask to do, right? Like like when when Pharaoh came and called for him, okay, he he wanted someone to. Uh, interpret the dream. And that's exactly what Joseph had done, okay? But he is about now to go one step further, okay? We'll see this in the next verse, okay? Because he is going to go a step further and he's actually going to give Pharaoh advice, right? Joseph is the most wise, right, out of anyone in Egypt, right? Because God is with him, because he has the spirit of God working in him. So he is the most wise. And God is trying to send a message to Pharaoh through Joseph. So Joseph now, he is wise and he is emboldened. He is now going to share something with Pharaoh, okay? As Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Right? We, have the, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And our understanding and our wisdom is greater than the understanding and wisdom of the world. And this is not a conceited thing to say. The world looks at Christians and thinks that we are conceited, that we are judgmental, that we are saying that, you know, we are, we know the right thing and everybody else is wrong. Okay. And that's why people look down on Christians. We as Christians have the mind of the creator of the universe. Okay. And what we are telling people is not what we want, is not what we think it should be. Right. Joseph is not this. Joseph did not decide, you know what? I think there should be a famine. And I'm going to start telling people that there's a famine coming. No. God told him there is a famine. And so Joseph felt compelled to share with Pharaoh that there was a famine. Okay? Even if that was not a popular message, even if that's something that people wouldn't want to hear. Pharaoh was actually very wise in that he believed Joseph and he allowed him to prepare. Other kings in the Old Testament, whenever prophets would tell them news that they wouldn't want to hear, they would reject those prophets. They would even kill those prophets. So, so we who have the mind of Christ, we understand where humanity came from. We understand the state of humanity now and what causes us to be the way we are. We understand where humanity is going, where the world is going. Okay, 
we understand the, the concept of sin. We understand the concept of human weakness. We understand man's depravity. We understand the need of salvation for the world, okay? So our decisions and our personal lifestyle should be based on that understanding, number one, okay? Because if we really believe this, then that should be reflected in the way we live. And just here as Joseph is boldly standing in front of the king of like the most powerful nation on the earth at the time, and he is telling Pharaoh, this is what you need to do, right? And he, he, didn't, he didn't just say, this is what your dream means. All right, thank you. Please let me go. I'm going to go back to my family. You know, he, he injected himself into the bigger picture, which is the fact that he knew that God had sent him for this purpose, okay? He knew that God was bringing him there for that purpose and that it was time now to speak the truth to Pharaoh, even if Pharaoh did not ask. Pharaoh here does not, did not ask Joseph, what should I do? We don't know if he was going to ask that question or not. But here, Joseph is going to offer his advice, which is really the advice of the Holy Spirit. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt and the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be reserved, shall be a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Okay. So even Joseph when he is advising Pharaoh, he did not tell him, place me in this position of responsibility because I know this and God has revealed it to me and I know exactly what to do. If you hire me, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Don't worry, right? He didn't try to sell his services. He didn't try to sell himself. He didn't try to make himself seem like attractive for Pharaoh to choose. Everything he is doing, he is just kind of like a third party observer, just telling Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. Choose a wise man that will do such and such and such. Okay. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? Like Pharaoh acknowledges that what Joseph has done is supernatural, right? The fact that you understand this dream and that you have a plan and that plan was so appealing to them. Like they understood the plan it was a very easy to follow plan. It was a doable plan. Like it was something that they could do. And, 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 and he trusted in Joseph, right? And his interpretation and his wisdom and his desire, right? And his commitment to do this, okay? Can we find such a one, a man in whom is the spirit of God, okay? Um, sadly, as Christians as a whole, you know, is this what we see? Like, is that what people say about us? Even people who are non-believers, Right? When they come to see us, do they see us and say, this person is a unique and amazing person? You know, Maybe they don't come and say, he, he has the spirit of God. Say, There's something different about them. Right? Maybe they look at us and they don't say that. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. So, like, this is an amazing turnaround for him, right? And you see, like, after the 14 years of him being in suffering, that in one day, it, like, not only gets better, but it, like, gets the complete opposite of what it was before. In one day, like, if you would have asked Joseph the day before this, what do you think your day is going to be like tomorrow? 
people could think it's the same as today. I mean, there's no reason to think Joseph is different. If you would have told Joseph next day, you are going to be like Pharaoh in Egypt, I think he would have died laughing at you, right? Like, like we do not, sometimes we, we, we don't realize how much God can actually do. The reason he doesn't do it is not because he can't do it, right? The reason he doesn't do it is not because he can't do it. It's because he, he doesn't feel it's the right thing to do. But if God sees that something is right to be done, then it doesn't matter how ridiculous it is in the eyes of man, it will be done, right? It will be done. Here, this is ridiculous that a person who is a prisoner, a foreigner in Egypt, would be given this opportunity and suddenly become the ruler of Egypt, just like Pharaoh. It's, it's beyond comprehension. Just like all the other things that God has done throughout the scripture that are beyond comprehension. Right? The problem is, is that when we read um, the scripture, we somehow subconsciously think to ourselves, yeah, yeah, okay, that's great. But that was God back then. Like that's the God of those people. That's the God of like these ancient people. The world was different then. You know, that stuff doesn't happen today. And maybe the idea that a person would go from being a prisoner to being a president of a country is not something that we would see, okay? But what is even greater than this, okay? Because one thing that we learn from Christ is the things that we as human beings find to be the greatest of value are usually not the things that are the greatest of value. When the friends, the four friends of the paralyzed man took him up on the roof and lowered him down in the midst of Christ in the crowded house, the only thing they cared about in that moment was him to be healed so that he could stand and walk. There was nothing else in their mind. There was like, if they could get that, that would be the ultimate, like, like, like reward and result of whatever they could expect to happen that day. That was all that they ever cared about. But what Christ offered to this man when he said, your sins are forgiven, okay? And he did that before he even healed him, was of far greater value than the man being able to stand and walk again, right? Because that man without Christ, even if he could stand and walk, he would eventually die. And just as all people would go to Hades, right? For eternity. But what Christ offered this man when he said to him, your sins are forgiven, he said, you can now live eternally in paradise whether you walk or you don't walk. Right? And the only reason he did the miracle was to confirm that he has the authority on earth to forgive sin. Right? So, so here what, what God is offering right, is far greater than sometimes what we look for. Right? Some far greater than what we look for. And so here what God is offering to Joseph is far greater than he would have expected. And he doesn't even begin to understand that this is not just about the food. This isn't just about the famine, right? That God is even using him as a messianic figure to represent the Lord Christ who was to come, you know, hundreds and thousands of years later. The symbolism here is that Joseph, remember who represents Christ, he had been rejected by who? Who, who is he rejected by? His brothers. So his brothers represent who? The Jews, because the Jews are the one, right? And so, but here, Joseph was accepted by who? The Gentiles, the pagans, right? So just as the Jews rejected Christ, his own brothers, but now he has been uh, accepted and acknowledged and elevated, right, by the Gentiles. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name... Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Okay, this name, Zaphonath Paneah, means food of life. That's why he called him that, food of life. Like he is saying that this man, Joseph, is going to store up for us the food that will bring life, right? And again, about Christ, what do we call Christ? He is what? The bread of life, right? He is the bread of life. So really, the, the name here, even his name, this is an ancient Egyptian name, actually is bread of life, right? Which is the name of Christ. 
Also, he is given this wife, Asenath, right? She represents the union of Christ to the Gentiles as like his bride, right? So the, the, just as like the Jews, uh, the, Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride, right? And as Gentiles, she represents like the, the, their marriage represents that union um, between Christ and his bridegroom. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Jesus was also 30 years old when he started his ministry. Okay? And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Okay? Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up uh, in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. So every city would collect the food. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. Okay, remember those seven years were years of plenty. So there was like more, more food than would even normally be. So he's collecting all this food, more food than he can imagine. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Okay. Joseph's sons right, represent the fruits of the believer. Okay, the fruit of the believer. Manasseh. What does Manasseh mean? Manasseh means to forget the past and to leave it behind. Like in Arabic, the word for forget, like ins, insa, Manasseh. Okay, is to forget. So then that's why he says even he called them that for that reason, right? For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So it is like his first, like his first son. It reminds him to forget all his the pain, like all the pain that he lived from before. Okay, to forget the past, and this is the first fruit of the believer, a person who forgets um, all the difficult, the painful things. Not that we forget and we don't learn from them, but that we are not um, we are not so devastated by the things that happen to us in our life because we have a hope and a better thing in the future. We are always looking forward and not looking backward. When we look backward, we look to learn, but we don't look to relive the past. We look to learn from the past, but not to re-experience the past, right? We, we, we look to the future and hopeful expectation of better days. And Ephraim means to produce fruit for the Lord, okay? To produce fruit for the Lord. In Philippians 3, uh, St. Paul, he speaks about this idea of forgetting. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. St. Paul, he had a lot of baggage. Can you imagine St. Paul, okay, that he murdered Christians. That's who he was. Imagine that we have a bishop who in his past life, before he became a bishop, he was a murderer. And he murdered us. He murdered families of maybe even people that we know. This is St. Paul. That's why when St. Paul tried to come to the apostles and tried to meet with the other believers, they were afraid of him. Right? You have a person who is a killer. Right? He goes around and he kills men, women, children just for their fact that they are Christian. And then this person becomes a bishop and becomes our bishop. Okay, so all imagine the kind of the internal struggle that he has in himself, like remembering all that he has done in the past from before. And so for him to say, you know, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. You know, St. Paul consumed his whole mind with Christ. His whole, his whole life, his whole being, his, everything he said, everything he thought, everything he did, everything he planned for, every desire that he had. So there was nothing left in him to remember the past. There was nothing left in him to, to suffer from the past, right? The more he, he, 
he kind of poured himself into his ministry and poured himself into his relationship with Christ, it's like that past person died. That person doesn't even live anymore, right? That was like, it's, it's like somebody else, which is why he changed his name. It's like somebody else, right? The beautiful thing about Christ is that Christ gives us a new opportunity every day. Every day there's a new opportunity to forget the past. Every day there's a new opportunity to forget the wickedness that maybe that I did in the past or the wicked things that was done to me in the past, right? And to look forward to something greater, to something better. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt ended and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Even this famine itself, because, you know, we can look at it and say, well, God is going to do all this miraculous stuff to make it known that there's going to be a famine. He's going to send people dreams. He's going to prepare Joseph. He's going to make Joseph to, you know, do all this. Why couldn't God just have stopped the famine? Like, like, like if God is going to do some supernatural work, why doesn't he just stop the famine? I mean, it's all the same to him. Like, he's obviously wanting to save the people from the famine. He's obviously wanting to prepare them so they don't suffer in the famine. He's obviously doing, you know, supernatural things to carry out this plan. Why doesn't he just cancel the famine? Yeah. So the famine is actually a precursor for the 400 years of slavery. Because essentially, like, the way the story goes, is that uh, that the the people essentially the Egyptian people themselves become slaves to Pharaoh? They sell themselves to Pharaoh so they can't survive. So actually, in the end, the Hebrews are the property owners. In the end, when you see the story, they will be the people who own some of the property in the land of Goshen. Goshen. Yeah, and then and then there will be like something some history that is not written, but. So, so the, the famine was the means. Like, if there wasn't a famine, what would have happened? Let, and let's say Joseph even hadn't been sold into slavery, because that's all part of this plan, right? What would have happened is Jacob and his family would have continued to live in the land of Canaan, and that's it, right? Like, I mean, there's that's where they were. There was nothing, and they were 70 people, right? It says that when they entered into Egypt, they were 70 people. So they were not a big nation like they... God, God is, is trying to fulfill, you know, trying, he is fulfilling the covenant which he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is that they are going to become a huge, huge, huge nation, right? So in order for God to, to make that to happen, right, he doesn't just snap his fingers and suddenly there's a huge nation. He is wanting to make a permanent place for them to live so they're not like nomadic wandering around in the wilderness like they are now. He wanted to make for them like a place where they can thrive, where they can grow, where they can be sustained, where they can own things, where they can, like, as a nation, right? And so that place was Egypt. So how do we get them to Egypt? Well, we install one of them as being the ruler of Egypt, who is now becomes this person who's going to save the world from the famine. He invites his family to come into Egypt, and all the Egyptians welcome them because he is the fam they are the family of Joseph. They give them a special place to live in Egypt, and then they grow, 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 multiply in number until there's millions. Right? That would not have happened if they were just wandering around. Right? So, but what I want to show you here is that the plan of God is bigger than one generation. We look back at this plan from the time, like, like when we were talking about Abraham. What did Abraham see of the covenant? What did he see? He saw Isaac was born. Okay. Isaac, he is the son of promise. I didn't see the generations. I didn't see the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky and all those things that God promised. Isaac didn't see it. Jacob didn't see it, right? But if you look at the whole picture from the beginning to the end, that's when you see God's plan in action, right? But if you look in the lives of each individual person, you don't get the context of what's actually happening. Even Joseph. like. For Joseph, what he sees is, yes, I'm, the world is being saved from a famine, and I'm bringing my family to live in Egypt. Okay, well, that's good. But that doesn't connect, in his mind, to the next thing that's going to happen. You know, and, and Moses, right? And if you look at just Moses, 
Moses' life, his life was characterized by wandering in the wilderness with stubborn Israelites, and he died even before he entered the promised land. So he never saw what was going to happen after that. So each person being faithful in their part of the story made the whole story to be successful, right? Even though they didn't see the outcome. Because they went, like in Hebrews chapter 11, when it refers to all these people, it calls them the heroes of faith. All right, the heroes of faith because they have to believe that what they are doing in obedience to God is for the furtherance of salvation for all of mankind, even though they don't know why, and they don't know how, and they don't know what place they're, they're playing in it, or what their actions are going to result in in the future. Right? So, this is important for us, each person in the Old Testament, and also in the New Testament. You know, St. Paul, like, did he imagine that the, the preaching that he did in his life was going to result in Christianity spreading to the whole world. You know, even St. Paul, like he, he had a lot of failures, St. Paul. Everywhere he went, he was rejected and stoned and shipwrecked and he died in prison. And, you, you know, like, like all of those things, if you look at it from the human perspective, looks like failure, right? But from the bigger perspective of God is success. That God uses it for the next thing, for the next thing, for the next thing, okay? So when all the land of Egypt was famished, okay, now we're in the years of famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you do. So now he is reaping the rewards, the, the benefit of all those years of preparation. Okay, The famine was over all the face of the earth and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. Okay. Finally, God, or finally, Joseph can kind of see the reasons why God allowed him to go through all the suffering was to put him in this place. So now he can do this work. Okay. And he accepted it faithfully his whole life without even understanding that this was coming. God never explained it to him. He never, he never told him this. He didn't say, I'm preparing you for this. Could have, but he didn't. He just said, live faithfully, day after day after day, live faithfully in apparent obscurity with no, no sense that he's ever going to leave Potiphar's house, with no sense that he's ever going to leave prison, with no sense that he could have lived the rest of his life in that prison. He had no reason not to live there if it wasn't for God's intervention. And Joseph had no reason to believe that he could ever get out of there. Right? But he lived faithfully nonetheless. Any questions about 41? Sorry, yeah, 41. Okay, um, in 42, we'll stop here since this is a good stopping point. But in 42, God willing, next time we'll talk about um, what happens when Jacob and Joseph's other brothers are also affected by the famine. And now they also travel to Egypt for food, and they meet with Joseph, and we'll see what happens there. Yes. This is kind of random, but in Scripture, is, it, is there ever a time when Joseph So some of the church fathers say that one of the ways that Joseph is a messianic figure is because the Bible does not call out any sin, right? It doesn't call out any specific sin that he did. Like, everything seems good. Now, we did talk about from the beginning when he was young, which isn't so much sin, but just more like being naive yeah. about how he is discussing these dreams he's had with his brothers and things like that. But yes, that is one of the things that church says about Joseph is it doesn't mean that he didn't sin. Yeah. It means yeah. that the Bible does not mention any, any sin. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Okay. Let's... Uh, Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask, oh God, that you teach us the many lessons that we can learn from the life of your servant, Joseph. Teach us, oh God, to be faithful to you at all times, even when we don't understand the outcome of the seasons of life that we're in. But help us to have faith and know, oh Lord, that you are working in us and working with us to carry us through, oh Lord, the difficult times. Teach us, O oh God, to fill up, O oh Lord, our hearts and our spirits with you during the times of plenty and to prepare us, O oh Lord, for the times of drought. 
Teach us, O oh God, your ways and strengthen your church in all places and strengthen your people, and especially during the time of this pandemic, so we remain vigilant, O oh Lord, and that we are set on fire by your love, draw closer to you, O oh Lord, and desire to be with you in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Saint Mark, and all your saints, here as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all.